the truth in his heart beyond and we're in philadelphia and i'm your host rob lee Today, I am thrilled to be in conversation um, with my next guest, a renowned artist, educator, activist, and advocate for the arts who has recently been appointed the Dean of the School of Art at University of the Arts in Philadelphia, where she is inspiring the next generation of artists and activists. Please welcome Cheryl Oring. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> happy to have you here. Happy you made the uh, the trek over. Um, it's, it's raining still, right? Oh my gosh, it's totally raining out there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite cats and dogs, puppies and kittens. Maybe it's a little drizzle. You know. I was wishing it would snow, but you know. <laughs> I like I like that. Actually, I'm gonna pat myself in the back. Puppies and kittens. I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna use that again somewhere. <laughs> I'm trying to make myself as TV dad as possible. So you know, Reginald Vell Johnson, the whole thing. That's what I'm going for. Awesome. So. I want to start off with sort of this um, vital stats, the origin story oriented question. So, you know, if you will, could you tell us a bit about your background and uh, um, please share your first creative experience with us? You know, so when I, I was thinking about my first creative experience and and wondering, you know, how far back do I go? Um, <laughs> you know, there's sort of so many different things, but I'm going to tell you a couple a couple stories um, sure. that I think are that I think are important. One is going back to fifth grade. Fifth grade. Well, first of all, I'm backing up a teeny bit. I grew up in Grand Forks, North Dakota. That is an hour <laughs> south of the Canadian border, an hour north of Fargo. You probably know that movie. Yes. Um, so I grew up an hour north of Fargo. Um, it is a very cold place. And um, when I was in fifth grade, I had the really great fortune to get to go to Ithaca, New York for a year. My parents went there for a year, and it was 1975. I'm going to age myself here, but 1975, Ithaca, New York, you can probably imagine it was a little different than North Dakota. There were lots of hippies wandering around, and it was just like a totally different world. And my fifth grade teacher, um, her name was Nancy Cohen. She invited a poet into the classroom. Yeah. So we had Polly the Poet who came into the classroom. I kid you not, Polly the Poet. Um, and she wore purple. So Polly the Poet who wore purple. Um, she always wore these you know, kind of flowing purple dresses. And she had us write poetry. And that was just a key moment for me. Wow. And, and what we did with those poems was um, we made books. Really? Yeah. So really like zines, you know, little yeah. zines with our with our poems. And and that was something that really stuck with me really my entire life. Uh, wow. the power of poetry and the power of words and and creativity and and the fact that you could make your own book. I mean, all those things were just really important for me. Fast forward a little bit, I had to go back to North Dakota. <laughs> Very upset about that, <laughs> you know, after a year in Ithaca. Uh went to middle school and um this is a strange thing that I only know in retrospect. You know, at the time, it didn't really make a big impression on me. But my seventh grade typing teacher, you know, we took typing classes then, <laughs> and IBM Selectric, was also the art teacher. Hmm. And the funny thing at that time was, um, you know, I, I really couldn't draw. I had very, very little natural talent when it came to drawing, but I could type really well. I was a really good typist. And somehow, you know, all these years later, that's become a very important fact in my, in my biography. So yeah. those are a couple things. No, thank you. That's, that's great. <laughs> that is great. Um, so having having this background as an artist, the um, renowned artist, like that, that's, that's what I read, you know, it's out there. And um, there's an activist, there's an advocate lens there. Um, 
could you tell us like at what point within your sort of your creative journey that you wanted to start incorporating or felt inclined to incorporate activism into your work and and how that interest has evolved over time? Yes, absolutely. And maybe I'll talk to you a little bit first about my first career, which was in journalism. Please. So I studied journalism in college and and you know did the thing, got jobs in newspapers, ended up in San Francisco. And ended up in a place um, at the San Francisco Chronicle where I was in meetings where people talked about what was on the front page of the newspaper. And I was often the only woman in these meetings and often the only one bringing up the fact that there were like no women or people of color on the front page of the newspaper. It just, you know, it was a really big deal at the time. Of course, now we talk about it all the time. But back then it was really not something that everybody was talking about. And it became a mission for me as an editor to to really... Uh, lift up stories about women and people of color within the news. You know, it was it was really a big deal. And when I went to um, I went to Berlin on a fellowship, on a journalism fellowship. And at the time, I thought I was going to write. Um, but as I um, got deeper into trying to learn German, it became stranger and stranger to be writing in English. And there was this thing that happened through this process of learning a foreign language, where one language was kind of being shut off because I was really trying to learn German, where I started to think more visually. Yeah. And that was really the transition that that helped me move into the field of art and something that I haven't really talked about that much or even or written about or, or anything, but it definitely happened. There was just sort of this this change in my brain happening as I as I dove into this foreign language and you know the feeling sometimes that you can't express yourself yeah. uh, when you're when you're trying to say something in a foreign language can be really frustrating so, somehow that pushed my brain to be thinking more visually and and functioning more like a like a visual artist functions I think and hmm. yeah that's, that's interesting um I, I've been really thinking, it's, and it's funny how like that's unlocked through trying to learn a new language and learning. Like, what does this mean here? Like, how can I relate this to like sort of your vocabulary in English? It's like, how does that relate? And I start thinking more and more about like what words mean, and mm-hmm. kind of like over the. This is gonna sound so ridiculous, but maybe not. But over like the last maybe twenty, twenty-five years, mm-hmm. like how words and what their meaning has shifted and how we use them. And I think in part, it's with that sort of growth of like social media, Mm -hmm. you got to encapsulate a thought in so many characters and then sort of the definitions and the meaning of things and the meaning of sentences and how we even converse outside of that that sphere Mm -hmm. has changed considerably. And I think a quarter of a century is not a short amount of time. That's right. So I think there's something there. And I think sort of when you're learning maybe another language, like if someone dives in and it's like, hey, I'm going to learn like Japanese for sake of argument, mm-hmm. it's so much more meaning and complexity there than how we talk here and whatever this version of English is. And I think it's so much online stuff that kind of hinders what the language means and the, the sort of power of the language. Yeah, there's so much around language, right? And, and, and I think I've thought a lot lately also about how when you learn another language, I think you, you also learn to take more time with understanding people who maybe don't speak the same language or I thought about it a lot moving to this new job actually I'm sort of jumping all around but you know when you move to a new place it's almost like you don't speak the language Mm -hmm. right you're moving to a different culture different way of thinking different way different history and I was thinking how that connected to the experience of learning a foreign language how you have to have patience Mm -hmm. understanding 
compassion and, and, and empathy in, in, when, in, in your interactions with other people because you don't have that shared history or that shared vocabulary. Yes, and I think there's something that un, like unlocks this idea of always being a novice, never a master. And I think that's mm -hmm. what it open, opens it up, opens us up to maybe learning something and, and receiving something in a different way. Um, like I, recent, I'll share this. I was in New Orleans, and I'd been there a few times before, and I love it, and I love that city, and it's all of the cool stuff. And I'll say, in doing this podcast. I went down there this most recently and had a completely different experience and loved it in a completely different way because I came down there as sort of this podcaster, journalist guy. And I'm like, oh, this is a story. Let's mm -hmm. cover this. This is the angle I want to take. Let's cover this. And it, you know, I, I was able to connect with people in a much different way. And that was the thing that was missing maybe from the previous times I was there. It's kind of not a tourist because I'm always looking for the cracks and crevices, mm -hmm. but it felt like that experience. It was nothing that really stayed. It was like romanticizing the city, but not really connecting it with anyone. Whereas this last mm -hmm. time connecting with some folks coming down there as this guy already having that background as a podcaster, but coming down with experience with doing interviews with folks in a concentrated period of time. Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to talk about, um, if you will, um, what is your, your first love creatively? And I, and I know journalism is in there. I know there's, there's art in there. So talk about your, your first love creatively and, and a bit about the process. Like what is something that, let's say, if you're working on a book for sake of argument, it, what was something in the middle? Was something at the beginning? Was something at the end? They talk about that process. Oh, you know, process is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, so okay. I was really happy to see that question. <laughs> and when I, um, I had a really amazing opportunity to take a week off uh, between jobs <laughs> and went to, um, I mean, really off, you know, which is very rare. And I didn't even take my computer with me. And I went to New Mexico to some hot springs. Nice. And yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing, I have to say. And while I was there, I also was able to spend a little time just wandering, you know, which is a really important thing, mm -hmm. and wandered into a bookstore and found this book. Um, the book is called Creativity, The Psychology and Discovery. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Creativity, The Psychology of Discovery and Invention. It's by Mihaly, and I am going to slaughter the person's last name. It's something like Sixen Mihaly. Um, it's by psychologist. And he talks about the five stages of creativity, preparation, incubation, insight, evaluation, and elaboration. And of course, there's a, this is not a linear, linear process. Uh, yeah, this one. I, I have the same one of my. You do? Yeah, uh-huh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Yes, it is. What I found so um, just powerful in the book was that it described me, you know, it described so much of what I do and how I function in the world. And sometimes I think as creative people, we feel, I feel misunderstood anyway. You know, if, if I'm not with my people, mm -hmm. other creative people, sometimes it just, it feels like people don't get me or people don't understand me. But this, the, he talked about these stages and how there's no linear path, you know, you, and you may be in one phase for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I felt I feel now like I'm I'm in sort of in preparation incubation for another big project because we'll we'll get into more of, of the specific projects that I've done but I've done two really large projects that have taken decades to make writer's block is one and I wish to say is another and working for decades on 
projects that deal with free speech and, and First Amendment rights and freedom of expression, et cetera, and politics um, has been a huge part of my life. Right. And I somehow feel I'm on the verge of, of something new, but it's going to take a little bit of time to come out. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's... um. I think that almost naturally leads us into the next question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> Writer's Block and I wish to say. Okay. So Writer's Block, um, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned that I went to Berlin. I went as a journalist. I had a fellowship that was supposed to be two months, and I took a six-month leave from my job in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then I did, um, you know, this really crazy thing. I called and quit my job. I didn't even go back. I just stayed in Berlin. <laughs> you know? I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a pretty bold act. And it was, it was you know, changed the trajectory of, of the rest of my life. So I'm really glad I made that call. And I was fixated by a couple things. One of the things was on my very first visit to Berlin, I stumbled across this place called Babelplatz. Mm -hmm. Babelplatz is the, the site of the Nazi book burning. So it's the place where students took books out of the library and burned them in 1933. Wow. Yeah. And in the middle of the square, it's a, it's a massive square in the middle of East Berlin, um, there's this piece by, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name now. So please cut this out. <laughs> And in, anyway, in the middle of the square, there's a, an, a there's this uh, work of art that is a glass window that looks down onto a room of empty bookshelves, mm. and so it's an empty library, right? Very yeah. symbolic of what had happened um, on this place, and that became a place that I went to over and over again. At first, when I first went to Berlin, it was just really powerful for me to think about what had happened. I started researching the book burnings, trying to understand it. Of course, it's like it's incomprehensible, right? You can't really imagine how students would take the books out of the library and burn them. You know, yes. it's just crazy to think about. And then at the same time, I also started seeing. Um, and sorry, Misha Ullman is the artist um, who who made that work. Oh, my own. I had a little brain, Boom. you know, something for a second. So, yeah. Um, so I started seeing typewriters everywhere. You know, like everywhere I went, I saw typewriters and I would buy one, you know, and then I bought another one. I just thought they were really beautiful. And of course, I thought I would write poetry on them or something like that. But I kept seeing more and more. And then I somehow I just had this question in my mind. What would I do if I had a, like a lot of typewriters? What would I make? You know, and then I had this and the idea for writer's block evolved from that question and, and that place that I was, the geographic location, the history of Berlin, and I, the word writer's block came to mind, and then I, I pieced together this whole crazy idea to make these sculptures that would be uh, made out of old typewriters caged in this rusty construction rebar, and they would be put on the side of the Nazi book burning and make the statement about censorship, and it was meant to really also as a tribute to the writers whose, whose books had been burned. Yeah. That was a whole crazy, crazy project. And I, you know, I barely spoke German at the time. It was really audacious for me as this young American woman to go to Germany and say, you know, I want to do this. And I had no money. I had nothing. I didn't have a car. Um, but I had a lot of um, just determination, yeah. really raw determination that I was going to do this and started networking and finding support. and. Um, I found a public relations agency that gave me space in their office and also kind of took me on as a project. They helped me make my first website and um, helped me write some things in German to, you know, collect typewriters. And 
and then people started helping. People started literally coming to help me. You know, oh. they they I needed help collecting the typewriters. Um, I, the funniest thing from that whole time was that Daimler Chrysler gave me a car. They gave me an A-class Mercedes for two months because I didn't have a way to go around and you know collect the typewriters. So I had this Mercedes and I had you know no money. It was it was just a very funny time, funny confluence of events. But um, and I collected all these typewriters. And at the same time, I had to get a permit to be able to do this on this public square, right? You know, yeah. I couldn't just like go set the typewriters out there. And so I been very polite and sort of, you know, done everything right. And I had written to the city and didn't get an answer, didn't get an answer. And finally, someone suggested I should just go to this planning department office. And so I kind of, you know, knocked on the door. And the person there was this um, East German man. And he told me, he's like, this is off the record, but I'm going to tell you it's not going to be permitted because we're just too scared that it's going to incite some sort of violence. And... So I didn't know what to do because I had been telling everybody I was going to make this work. And people had given me their typewriters, like individual people had given me their typewriters, right. you know, thinking that I was going to make this work. And, you know, I, what I did was I told one of, my, one of my friends who was a journalist that the city wasn't going to allow me to do it. And that was pretty amazing because the newspaper in Berlin wrote a story saying the city was banning this work. Wow. And then the next day, the city decided that they would let me do it. But they, I was originally planning to do it for 10 days, and they decided that I could only do it for one day, literally 24 hours. So it was this massive amount of work, like insane. I was just not sleeping, not eating, you know, like working night and day to get this thing done with like huge teams of volunteers. And probably the, you know, the one thing I regret in my artistic practice is that I actually went by their thing. So we did, you know, we set it up, it was there for 24 hours and I did take it down. I should have just left it there, you know. <laughs> it's, it's very, very punk rock. It's like, I leave jobs <laughs> and I leave up art. I'm out of here. <laughs> I really should have done that. But what, you know, a lot of things happened from that. It was, it was really the most amazing event. It, it was, it was Okay, so in researching the book burning, what had happened was on the night of the book burning, it was actually raining. And this is in 1933. Yeah. And right around the time that the Nazis were trying to light this fire uh, uh, with these books, the opera let out. It's next to the opera house. And all these fancy people in their opera outfits were out on the square, and there were vendors selling chocolate and, and hot dogs and, and, you know. Things like that. And people were eating in their fancy dress and watching the Nazis try to burn the books. And it was raining, so it was really hard to get the fire started. Right. So the night that my piece had its opening and I worked with a couple of other amazing artists, Summer Ulrichsen, who's a choreographer, and Ari Benjamin Myers, who's a composer, they did music and dance that referenced the music and dance forms that had been banned in the Nazi period. And as they started performing, it started raining. And... People didn't leave. They took out their umbrellas and stayed. So it was just this really lovely, powerful moment um, that happened, you know, once and is gone. That is also a theme in my work, the ephemeral and, and how the power of things that happen, you know, in a moment in time and and then disappear. I, I, I like that. Um, I on occasion, I think of sort of these these moments where people talk about um Back in the day, you go to a, a concert, 
you got that one thing. You didn't get it recorded. You didn't didn't get it filmed. So when you experienced it there in that one time, mm-hmm. you were there. This was the moment. You enjoyed it, and you have those memories that are attached with it. So something that's a very short term. <laughs> it wasn't your choice, but very short term, mm-hmm. sort of like you know art installation. It is definitely just something that's going to stick with the folks that were there to experience it. So like you can see pictures, and I saw a few pictures of British Block online, and I was mm-hmm. like. I was like, what are we? I was like, oh, I get this. <laughs> that was literally what it was because I have been in more and more conversations. As, um, folks will ask me, Rob, you know art. I was like, do I? They said, you talk to art people. Tell me about art. I was like, what, what is this question? But when I was looking at like your, your work, the images mm-hmm. from your work, I was like, I get art. That was literally what, what popped up. I was like, I get this. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's great. So I want to move into, um, let's talk about. Um, I wish to say a little bit, you know, sure. Because that's uh, also a large, large scale. So, I mean, we're really trying to condense, as you said, a few decades of work into this chunk. So, tell mm-hmm. us about tell us about that. Yeah. So, it, it, it connects to writer's block in some way, and, and somehow they're really deeply connected. And and maybe we'll even get into the psychology behind it too. But Please. Um, yeah. so, writer's block happened in Berlin. It went on tour, and one of the places I wanted to show it was in New York at at Bryant Park, right behind the New York Public Library, and so it was there, which was amazing. And then it went into storage, and I was you know, trying to figure out what to do next. And I was in Brooklyn, living in Brooklyn. Um, I didn't have a studio space. By then, I had moved from Berlin back to the US and didn't have a lot of space, no money. I had some typewriters. <laughs> and rich in typewriters. <laughs> rich in typewriters. And um, there was an organization that does uh, First Amendment rights things in the in the Bay Area, and they heard about Writers Block, and they wanted me to come talk to them about what it would take to show Writers Block, right? These big, massive sculptures that were at that point housed on the East Coast. And they said, you know, since you're coming, these were lawyers actually. It was a, a legal organization and called the First Amendment Project. They support uh, First Amendment rights for journalists and and do legal work around that. So not an arts organization, but they so they said come out and if you have any other ideas, you know, for what you could do while you're here, you mm-hmm. know, for a low budget and you know not not too much investment, let us know. And I had started thinking about the idea of the person on the street interview, and how powerful that is, you know, mm-hmm. as a journalism journalist tool. And this was 2003. We were going through the George. I had to go back in time. You <laughs> know, George Bush was getting. Uh, re-elected, and, and I felt very disconnected from American politics. That was really the, the other big factor in me coming up with this idea. I'd been in Germany for six years. Yeah. Um, was like, how, what, do, what do people think? Like, what are people thinking? And I'm not seeing what regular people think in the news. You know, it's just not making it to the newspaper, right? Right. And so I, it was really a confluence of my experience as a journalist and then also my experience as an artist coming together and wanting to do this thing. Oh, and the other thing, and I I can't forget to say it. So my grandmother was a secretary, and she was actually a secretary at the political science department at University of Maryland. Wow. Yeah, for many years. And and she always let me play dress up, you know, when I went to her house. And she was a she was a woman who always wore wigs. Um, she always had you know matching purse and shoes and all the costume jewelry, um, you know, in her closet. Her drawers were just filled with costume jewelry. 
you know, and I remember when I was 13, I got to go visit her for about a month. And, you know, I just got to play dress up right. in her closet. It was the most amazing thing. So all of these things came together with the idea that I had, which was to take a typewriter, set up a little office on a street corner and ask people to dictate a postcard to the president. So I mentioned that idea to these people in San Francisco, and they loved it. And they said, okay, we'll work on places. And they ended up um, coming up with one place in Oakland and one place in San Francisco. And I had my, you know, my secretary's suit on and my typewriter and my rubber stamps and asked people if they wanted to send a postcard to the next president. And typed out the postcards. And the thing was, I didn't. I didn't expect the response. I did, well, I didn't know what to expect, right? right? You, you know, you start a project, you have no idea. And this is kind of a, 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 a way that I often find that I work, is like start something very small and test it, almost yeah. like an experiment. Yeah. So these were little experimental performances in, San Francisco, in a cafe in San Francisco in an art space in Oakland. And people lined up to do this. They just, they waited in line patiently. And... It was really emotional. Like the emotion that came out from these shows was something that I hadn't expected. Yeah. You know, in Oakland, I remember to this day a student writing about how they didn't have school supplies. You know, and you're like, okay, I'm writing this. This is this is real. The president needs to know this. There was like an urgency of wanting to share these stories. Yeah. And I decided after doing those two shows that I was going to keep doing it through the election cycle that year that was in february 2004 and so i I didn't have any you know no money no grant support just kind of you know did it myself and found people to help and took the 25 dollar bus from new york to boston and wherever i could and then the other thing was i had a friend who was a writer this is the other thing and i always like to tell students too when you're when you're starting out in with these types of projects you just you have to be really creative in how you do them so I had this friend who was a writer, and and she didn't like to drive, but she had a book. T- she'd organize a book tour, and she's like, "Would you come drive me around to my book tour, and you can do your project along the way?" <laughs> so that was actually literally how I did a lot of the work um, in two thousand four. Wow, yeah. two thousand four. We're twenty twenty. Oh, oh my gosh, wow. it's, right. it's going to be twenty years. So this is huge for me. It's yeah. going to be twenty years in twenty twenty four. So I'm starting to think about that, mm-hmm. and. I'm really thinking about how I want to set this project free in the sense that I want to make it available for teachers to use in their classrooms. I've seen how powerful it is with students, with high school students, even down to middle school, definitely college students. So I'm thinking about ways that I could make a kit and and offer it for checkout or or put the instructions up, you know, online so people can do it. So that this is this doesn't need to be my work anymore. You know, I've done it for 20 years. It's it's been amazing. The things that people have said have have broken my heart and inspired me and kept me going and and really um, been a huge part of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. And we, you know, I got a next question about that. You may have already asked. You may have already presented the question, so I'm going to ask it in a moment. But I definitely want to comment on that. Where sort of that timing, right? I was in high school. Like uh, I think I was was asked, like, and it's sort of everyman thing um, by I think the local news affiliate, um, and it was from I think it was like an education reporter, mm-hmm. and I just remember I was so shy on camera, and I was like, man, I don't know what we're going. I'm looking down, right? I don't know what we're going to do, but whoever we got here for the next four years, hopefully we know it's politics, and that's me as like 
let's see, what, I may have been 15, may mm-hmm. have been 16 or something, and really just being being cognizant of what it means because just listening to folks and not being able to vote at the time because mm-hmm. I was underage, but having like an awareness of this matters, guys. And it was funny because this was after a social studies course mm-hmm. and we were talking about it. And then sort of four years later, I think I was like 19 at this time and I'm in college and I had, it's like I was burnt out. It's like, I've seen it, man. We've gone through four years of this, man. And it's sort of this period of reelection. And I believe that was what um, Bush carried all of that stuff. And I was like, what is happening? What are we doing? And I was just kind of a different person, but still different person. And I've seen things, you know, in that four years and just having like a, a similar perspective, but a more informed perspective and in being able to go through that process of voting for the first time. And I guess seeing this, seeing democracy or seeing the whole voting system and really as a, as an analyst and as a person that likes to ask questions, really asking a lot of questions at this point, because I'd had the experience of going through the process and being, I guess, an adult at that time in that sort of second round. You know, I, I've seen the impact that this type of active listening can have on young people mm-hmm. and it can be incredibly empowering, you know, just to feel that they matter. They're, you know, kids that I've worked with through this project that nobody no adult has ever listened to them yeah and just that act is is something somehow very powerful and why i'd like to set this up to to give to the world and as a as a framework as a as a project that anybody can do really um yeah because i think you know it gets us in this sort of point where you know, pe- there's so many different people who don't have the opportunity to have their voices heard. Right. And so, if you will, speak more on sort of the through line, sort of the thinking that goes into, you know, this intersection of activism, mm-hmm. this intersection of art. Speak more on the, like, the thinking, the psychology behind it. <laughs> I'm like, how deep do you want to go? As deep as you would like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to drown, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've been... Th- your questions are so provocative in a good way. I really I really appreciated your questions. I appreciate your questions. And I think you're going to get me to talk about something I've never talked about. Please. Um, so why did I make this work? Writer's block, and I wish to say, right? I oh. mean, there's a deep personal connection to the work. They're really self-portraits. So... Um, you know, I grew up in a family with a severely mentally ill sibling, and it was never really diagnosed, so it's hard. I've always had a hard time talking about it because it's like, what do I say? I mean, um, but the end result was that, you know, I felt like I was the one who was sort of saying, like, you know, there's a, there's a problem here, right? Like, but nobody was listening, you know? It was like, it was very hard to for my parents to come to terms with what was going on or even like acknowledge what was going on. And so I think the work is really a reflection of that, that experience, right? First being like feeling like I couldn't express myself <clears throat> and next feeling like nobody was listening. Mm. And so I really empathize with people who have that feeling of being oppressed or not being not being 
heard or, or not being empowered, right? Like yeah. there's, that was from a really personal family situation. Um, and I think I'll stop here, but you feel free to uh, ask follow-up questions to no, all that. No, no, thank you. <laughs> um, and I, and I, and I, I, and I think I get where you're going and, you know, to the degree in which you, you present it and I relate in that, you know, being told that, hey, you have this perspective or this interest, this doesn't matter, it's not that important, or being told to make yourself smaller, you know, for whatever reason, don't make waves. And by virtue of me being who I am, it's like I can't help some of that stuff, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it comes up every now and again. And I had this conversation with someone recently in doing this and with doing so many interviews and talking mm -hmm. on here more than I would like. I'm a very shy individual, right? And, you know, having this feeling of as much as I try to support folks sharing their story, I also feel voiceless while at the same time. And it's like trying to have sort of this perspective and helping other folks get their perspective out there. Oh, I told, well, <laughs> journalism, you know, <laughs> that's what we do, right? Yeah. You get other people to tell their stories. And so I think that's partly why it's been hard for me and why I haven't really connected the deeply personal side of this work to the work. It's, it's remained as, you know, the political and, which it is, of course, it's, it's highly political um, and activist and all that. But it did come from this really personal place. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, this connects to what I do in, you know, in academia as well. Please, so yeah. just fast forward in time, um, and not to be a big downer, but my brother did eventually commit suicide. And so it's something that I'm highly attuned to. And I, it's, it's like it follows me wherever I go. So that happened about 10 years, well, 12 years ago now, but, um, you know, that when in my first teaching job, there was a faculty member who committed suicide at my university and it was kind of covered up. Like nobody wanted to talk about it. It was like, just happened, but wasn't out there. Then a student committed suicide. Then another student committed suicide. It wasn't until the third student committed suicide. And that was after I had left that university but I was still friends with some of the people there. It wasn't until after the third instance of suicide in one department that people talked about it openly. And, and I think it's, it's interesting. Like one of the things I try to insert, I try to work a little bit of my sensibilities into like the back end. Like when I brought in the rapid fire questions, that which some people call like the BS questions, I'm like, look, it's, I, I don't want the guests to feel like a commodity. Mm -hmm. Just tell me about your work. Why are you interested? Why should people care? And it's like, no, tell me about who you are as well in there. And one of the things I've recently been adding in there because, you know, old dad Rob is here. It's that sort of self-care component. I started mm -hmm. asking people, did you have breakfast today? <laughs> yes or no, you know? Or how many hours of sleep are you getting? Some of those things that, you know, if you don't aren't paying attention to some of the, some of the unhealthy or unproductive and just, just scary things can present themselves and you're not thinking like straight, not to macroly speak on anything, mm -hmm. but it's already, it's always worth checking in on someone, especially creative folks, especially folks that are working a lot oh and gosh, yes. very sensitive. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So in, in shifting just a touch, you were touching on academia a bit. So, so talk about, um, 
which you're, which you're doing in your current role. Mm-hmm. So I just started as Dean of the School of Art at University of the Arts here in Philly, which I'm so excited <laughs> about. Um, it's really great to be here. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot to do. This is a, this is a challenging time for students. It's a challenging time for everybody. I think that we haven't recovered from the pandemic by any means. And yet there's sort of a feeling maybe overall in society that we should just get on with life, but we're not, we can't, we can't. People lost two years, you know, there was this, and not just two years. I mean, what I find in moving locations is that there's this period of time where people experience such loss and such different loss and it was in really personal ways that are different from you to me depending on your personal circumstances do you have kids at home do you have elderly parents uh did you lose your job did you you know there's so many different factors that made the experience of the last two years very different from person to person and so you can't make assumptions at all what somebody went through and yet we're expected to sort of come back and just you know be some kind of normal no it doesn't work like that so um and for students you know they lost two years Mm -hmm. and now they're at the university and they they can't get that time back. It's it's two years, but then I, I think we always feel like we lose a year somewhere in the middle because as I'm looking at it, it's like, it'll be March soon. And, you know, day job is in higher ed. And I was like, we left in March. Yeah. I was like, this is coming up on an anniversary, right? And then yes. almost think of sort of the buffer time around that. Like, we were just coming back or preparing for spring break. And then on the back end of it, things aren't going to be back to normal as far as the, you know, faculty that's there, what graduation looked like, all of these different things that we present as hallmarks and things that you have to accomplish because we look at education in a certain way here, even though we really, really don't. Well, what you just said, it's been three years. I said two years, but, you know, it's been three years, three years. And because this year wasn't any form of normal either. So we have three years of adjusting and uh, I think so mental health is really high on my list of priorities for students and faculty and staff and and everyone that I work with at UArts I think for students it's particularly challenging they they the way that we come together changed so fundamentally and so we find students being uncomfortable with too much time together right like it's basic things really basic basic things like we're just starting to get back to in-person events, like bigger events, right? And gatherings and kind of socializing. And the way we socialize is different. And our capacity to socialize is different. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like we're, I, I feel it. I, I, everybody I talk to feels it. We're not able anymore to maybe function at the high level of interaction that we did prior, prior to the pandemic. I think for artists, this is maybe a particular change. Like, a lot of artists need time alone, right? And and in the pandemic, we had this extreme amount of time alone. But yes. now we're coming back. You need, you know, you need both. Um, I was actually when I, this is rambling, but I feel like this is a good place to read that. Back to that creativity book. Please, please. Um, there was a quote that really struck me. It said, "Make sure that where you work and live reflects your needs and tastes." There should be room for immersion and concentrated activity and for stimulating novelty. That's really important, right? The objects around you should help you become who you intend to be, Mm. what you intend to be. Think about how you use your time and consider whether your schedule reflects the rhythms that work best for you. 
If in doubt, experiment until you discover the best timing for work and rest, for thought and action, for being alone, and for being with people. And that to me is so right on, right? And, and what, I, what I think is powerful about where we are right now in time is that we have more choice about how we structure our days than we did prior to the pandemic. You know, we can work from home um, in, in many places. Not everywhere, of course, but, you know, in, in some, uh, some jobs that we do, we can take our work home and um, structure our days differently. Yeah. I, I just remember being in academia, you know, 10 years ago, and there was zero flexibility for some of the jobs. They wanted people in the office every day, you know, not for the professors, but for some of the staff people. Or, and I think, like, it's actually not necessary. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the things that I encounter, I try to from my vantage point, I try to just work in like, hey, you know, almost like a consigliere, almost like a little finger if you're a uh, Game of Thrones sort of person. It's like, yeah, you ever think about this four-day work week? Maybe we should trim this down or can yeah. we look at this configuration and, you know, just in a different way? And I was like, one could say that there's a business case for this. Oh, yeah. And and I, you know, try to present it in that way to make it feel like, because, you know, people love hearing themselves talk, make it feel like it's their idea. But really... Take a take a temper, temperature read. People are finding ways not to be in the office, and this setup doesn't work. You know, in many regards. So, if the case is for students who've graduated under those terms, or you know, classes who've graduated under those terms, who've had the virtual graduations, the commencement, and all of that. So, if we're saying that that graduation, that whole experience is of the same value, then why are we treating the work of the work differently? You know, like you have right. to be in here or this work isn't really work. You're only operating at this percentage or what have you. I think it's been proven through, you know, small sample sizes, especially in Europe, that a four-day work week, people are a little bit more productive because you don't Absolutely. really worry about the hump day. You're kind of just doing your stuff. And I think a shift to the work being task-oriented versus, hey, you have to be in here 40 hours or whatever it looks like, being here to get your stuff done. That's really what it is, I think. Yeah. And but going back to your question about, you know, what's happening at UR, so uh, mental health is is huge. I also want to talk about, how, so the the priorities that drove my art practice, which Please. were which were giving voice to the voiceless, really, um, that's also a, a huge priority in academia, right? Looking at which artists are we teaching in our classes? Which artists are we showing? Is there a great representation of BIPOC artists, queer artists, women artists, people who haven't necessarily gotten the, the respect and, and yeah, the respect that they deserve in the, in the classroom? I just, just the other day, there was these stories in the press about the Tate reorganizing their permanent collection and they were going to do half 50% women or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was telling my daughter who's, she's a mixed race child and she's like, is it going to be 50% BIPOC or, you know, women of color? How are they going to do that mix mom? And I'm like, you know, that is such a great question. And the news was all just 50% women. It's like they hadn't even thought about, um, who exactly. Um, but yeah, these are these are things that young people are asking for and demanding, and definitely we, um, in positions of power within academia, need to respond to and and make change that is really long overdue. Yeah, and it it, it kind of leaves out that conversation around intersectionality and all of that. It's like, like 
it's not the same, but I think sort of the conversation is, is similar when there was this sort of belief, uh, my partner's in also in higher ed, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, when there was a lot of rumblings, I want to say in 2020, after um, George Floyd was murdered and all of the fallout and all of the demonstrations and all and activism around that, I remember politically speaking, it was a lot of a lot of shawls, a lot of kneeling, a lot of a lot of kente cloth, and I was like, hmm. And there was some thinking that, oh, we might get reparations, mm-hmm. and I went immediately back to my experience in college. Mm-hmm. You know, we just all we talked about, and I, at a point, I was like, how are you going to determine who's black? Because we're here now, and they get real weird of who's black at, ter- at certain points or what have you. So if they're going to say, we're doing this in this way, how do they make that sort of determination? It's not going to be something that we're all going to be happy about. It's going to be something that feels super racist and weird. And I think that was sort of the mic drop yeah. around mm-hmm. that because it's never been a good way. I was like, they can determine. I was like, they can determine a lot of things, but they won't. And the sort of notion around you know, the things that you want to do, you're able to do. Mm-hmm. Like when we got sort of whatever um, uh, um, check or what have you that was given, uh, I call it the Trump check, whenever that came out, that information was there. It was quick. You were able to get it. But people who were in a more vulnerable position, it seemed like it was harder for them to get it. Right. So I was like, no, this is going to be weird. Let's let's not fall into it. Let's stay focused on really what we want. And really, we want justice. We want these things around this issue, not sort of the shift. It's a distraction. Don't fall for, oh, I threw a pin that way. Look that way. Keep keep focus on what it is. And that, I think, hits in various areas. When there's sort of this shift of, hey, we're suddenly woke now. Cool. How are you going to really do that, though? What, right. what does it look like in practice? Right. Right. So in Detroit, one of the things that we did when the pandemic happened and we had to close our gallery, I rented a billboard space in the middle of Detroit and we did this exhibition that we called In the Air. It was right uh, right at the same time all the Black Lives Matter protests were happening around the country. And we got artists of color to make work that related to this whole movement and put it right front and center in the middle of Detroit. It may not sound like a big deal but it kind of was it just it really changed the feeling that people had in the community for the university because the university even though it's right in the middle of Detroit had been run by white people for for many years right and it and it I think it changed the mood and sort of opened up a conversation and a way of collaborating in the future with artists in the city it's you know these things are difficult and i think that something like that was a good first step yeah and not an end goal you know it was and then you know hopefully the people who are there can continue that conversation and and keep um trying to make change thank you um Let's see. I want to ask you one more question as we're we're coming up on time, which mm-hmm. I always have to be aware of time. It's always time here. Yes. Um, so th- this is sort of the the, the last question um, that that I have before I get to those rapid fire questions because I always have to get the rapid fire questions. <laughs> um, so could you share your your vision for inspiring this this next generation of of, of artists or have you through your work with uh, University of the Arts, you Arts? Could you share mm-hmm. like your thoughts in that area and? Um, we can close on that piece there. 
Yeah, well, I, I want to um, create an atmosphere of belonging and respect and create opportunities for students. I think that's one of the most important things that uh, students can get out of an education to come through, be challenged, um, learn how to think differently, possibly bring their own experiences to the, to the table, but also have conversations with others who might be different from them and learn from that. Um, travel's always been really important for me, coming up with ways for students to experience uh, different places, um, whether it's in the US or outside the US and creating creative thinkers and people who are confident in their abilities and, and know that they're gonna be the next generation to change the world. That's great, that's great. I, 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 love, I love the vision, I must Thank say. You. I must say. Uh, so now it's this portion where I wanna go into these, these rapid fire questions I have for you and then we'll wrap on that um, <laughs> okay. with some shameless plugs and all <laughs> okay. of that. Uh, so for you, what is the first thing that you do in the morning? Oh, the first thing that I do in the morning, I usually turn on some music. Um, depends what it is. Or the other thing, very first thing, I usually write to my daughter. She's not with me right now, so I usually text her. Okay. I, I was, I was gonna, I was hoping you'd say the same thing, and I say, uh, dread the day. Like, you uh, what? Dread the day. Yes. <laughs> it's like ah, my knees are usually. I'm going to the gym at like four, no, five thirty or what have you. I'm heading to the gym. That is early. Yeah. Whoa. Doing this new thing, I've been lifting heavy, so it's been it's been something. Impressive. Uh, thank you. Are you more oriented toward learning by watching or learning by doing? No, that's a hard question. I was thinking it shouldn't be, shouldn't be a hard question. Um, but to me, they go together. So like. I, wa I like to watch and then do. Okay. That's a bad answer. but <laughs> No, no it's, 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 it's an honest answer. There's no such bad thing as bad answers. honest answers. Uh, salty or sweet? Probably salty. What is your favorite font? Now we're getting into the typography portion of oh, the podcast. My um, well, the one that I like to use if I'm trying to do anything um, with typewriters is Trixie. It's a typewriter font. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll leave it with that. And if it's more designy, then maybe Helvetica. And this is the last question I got for you. This is the pop culture question I thought you were going to enjoy. Uh, so movies with famous typewriters. Which movie do you prefer, The Shining or Misery? The Shining. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought you would appreciate what I did there. I, I do. I, I was trying. I, do. I was trying. Uh, so I want to I thank you for being on this podcast, taking the time and, and chatting with me and sharing and sharing and sharing. You're so welcome. Thanks for your excellent questions. Thank you. <laughs> and um, in, in the final moments here, I want to invite and encourage you to um, share anything that you want, um, social media, website, any of that stuff that you want to share with the listeners. The floor is yours. Oh, thanks. My website is CherylOring.org. It's S-H-E-R-Y-L-O-R-I-N-G.org. And I'm Cheryl Oring on Instagram. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Cheryl Oring from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia for coming on to the podcast and sharing with us. And I'm Rob Lees, and there's arts and culture and activism. And around your neck of the woods, you've just got to look for it. Music.